1: Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Whether you're looking for a good Korean skincare or affordable and trendy jewelry, they've got you covered. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success Hey y'all, and welcome to Trials to Triumphs. I'm Ashley Blaine Featherston Jenkins, but you can call me ABFJ. This week, my dear friend, actor and activist, Kendrick Sampson talks to me about drive and the audacity to pursue purpose. Many years ago, Kendrick and I met at a young Black filmmakers program in Los Angeles. We had a hunger for our craft and an unyielding commitment to do whatever it took to achieve our dreams. Sometimes, as we mature and encounter challenges, we can unknowingly let our fears and imposter syndrome creep in. These fears diminish and limit our sense of imagination. Kendrick knows all about that frustration and often finds himself wrestling with dreams that seem too big.
2: I'm always like, yo, can I pull this off? And then I have to go through it and realize there's nothing else I could possibly see myself doing I mean, this drives me. We should have that audacity to envision bigger and freer and more beautiful every day.
1: Kendrick's drive and audacity have opened up many doors for him. On screen, he starred in ABC's How to Get Away with Murder and HBO's Insecure. Off screen, he spearheads Build Power, a nonprofit that provides mental health resources to help heal the trauma of police brutality. My conversation with Kendrick left me with an important question that I'll also pose to you, my dear listeners. What bold dreams might your drive and audacity unlock? And in our Sankofa moment, Kendrick reveals the world-class performer and activist he would have joined in the fight for change.
2: He's so powerful and I could learn creatively from him and what international solidarity meant, what supporting these countries in the height of their liberation movements meant. And I want to sit at his feet and just learn. Kendrick! What Hi,
1: my friend.
2: How you feeling? Oh
1: my gosh, I feel great. I'm so happy you're here. I have a kajillion things I want to talk to you about. You, to me, are a dear friend, but also just one of the most interesting people I know. And so I'm really excited for everyone else to just dive into just how interesting you really are and your life has been. I, I'm just really looking forward to it. But first, do you remember how we met?
2: Of course I do.
1: Okay, Kendrick, you tell the story. You tell the story.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, we, we ain't got to say how long ago. Well, no, it was probably we about- should. But yeah, it's probably about 14, 14 years ago. Or it something was two thousand and
1: eight, like two thousand
2: eight. Yeah, and it was um, American Black Film Festival when they when they came to LA. They mm-hmm. had a young filmmakers program. I yes. barely scraped by. This dude Theo Perkins was helping. <laughs> um, was helping Ghana Odette put this this young black filmmakers program together and we, it was me, you, Paige Hurd,
1: Mm -hmm. this dude,
2: Ben Foster, you were still at Howard. Yeah. Um, Like I'm trying to think of who else was in that crew. And we got to listen to folks talk and um, learn from them. Sit front row. We got to ask mm-hmm. questions and have our little questions prioritized. It's, you know, it felt good. It felt good, yeah. and we got developed lifelong bonds. I mean, it's the serendipity is is just the alignment is beautiful. Like seeing how yes. how everybody's grown,
1: and you know, just even sitting here talking to you about where we were in two thousand and eight. To where we are now is just, it's impressive. I was going to say amazing, but I think it's impressive. Like we really and truly have kept the faith and just kept on trucking along. And we have amazing careers doing exactly what we want to do. But we're going to get into how we started, where we started, and how we got to where we are now. Exactly. But I just, I remember meeting you, Kendrick, and we just instantly had a bond. We just had a bond. I think we knew that we were going for the same type of stuff we were similar type of people and um you know to just see where you are now in your life and your career i am so proud of you my friend i really really am
0: you like to watch new stuff right well go to hulu and see what's new because hulu has new stuff all the time
1: But before we <laughs> get into it, I want to start with some icebreaker questions, okay? Okay. So, icebreaker question number one. Kendrick, what is your favorite comfort food from home?
2: Ooh, damn, that's hard. Um, you can
1: pick two. I'll give you two, Kendrick.
2: Yeah, I would say probably, I, I love soft-shell crab. Mm. Um Love Soft Shell Crab, like Creole, you know, put a little <laughs> sauce on there, a little, you know, Rimala, whatever. <laughs> um, I I love, I love Creole food. So anything really Creole, but I love Creole food and then um, dang Houston, probably a Kalachi. Hmm, kalachi that? or boudin. There's a place called Shipley's Donuts, but that's not where Kalachis came up. I think Kalachis are are rushed. Something. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a Russian pastry or something like that. Anyway, um, they, it's very, very specific to Texas. I didn't know until I left that people don't know what kolaches are. They're like um, uh, meat wrap pastry, basically. There's meat, like a sausage or something inside or ham or, or whatever. Now they got boudin kolaches. So it has evolved to inc- incorporate like some of the Creole culture that's in Houston, because Houston's so close to New Orleans, so now you got ah. boudin calaches. They put boudin, which is like dirty rice in a casing, inside this pastry, and sometimes there's cheese in it and stuff like that. It's kind of like a pig in a blanket, but completely enclosed and far better.
1: Ooh! I just had a boudin in um, New Orleans for Essence Fest.
2: Yeah, yeah. I didn't.
1: I, I will. I have to admit, I didn't get my life. I really, really <laughs> wanted to. I, I could really... tell
2: because you called it a boudin. Uh- <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 they were boudin balls, I guess. <laughs> boudin
2: balls. Okay, a boudin balls. They were yeah, boudin yeah, yeah. balls. So and they I were remember, fried. So-
1: They were fried. And the waitress, Uh. she was so sweet. She put them down on the table. And I was like, oh, what are these? She was like, you just got to try it. And I was like. "Uh." (laughs) And so I tried it. And she like stood there and watched (laughs) me try it. And I was like. I, I thank you so much for this. This is not my favorite, but I so appreciate it. Soft shell crab, I can get into. Although I think it's interesting you say soft shell crab because I'm a from Maryland, so I love crab. Right, but right, right, right. Most right. people don't talk about soft shell. Soft shell is see, like an yeah. underrated seafood. Yeah. I think
2: because then you ain't gotta see. Because I love crawfish. I love shellfish. Right, but mm-hmm. them things take a lot of work. You know, you. you mm, I like the work. I like the work. Yeah. I I don't when I'm hungry. Yeah. I, if I'm cool and passive, I got to eat before I go to a crawfish boil or a crab boil because, you know, <laughs> as long as it takes to get that little piece, I need some bread. You know, I'll be over there looking for the potatoes and <laughs> the, I'm like, I need something to fill me up.
1: Oh, so my god! So, shop I
2: crab? You just eat the whole thing.
1: That's a, okay. That is a very good response. I love that. I want to start at the beginning. What did Houston teach you?
2: Oof. Man. Uh, or should I say Maine? No, uh, Houston. <laughs> that's Houston. Maine. So much. So much. Taught me how to drive. Reckless. It's such a diverse place, like even within blackness, right? There's it's like the Mecca of Nigeria in in in. uh. The United States. So mm. anybody you ask who's Nigerian probably got, especially if they're Igbo, they probably got some family in Houston or they oh, wow. grew up there or whatever. Or Dallas, it's it's uh, there's a lot of people. It's a huge port as well. So there's a lot of Caribbean folks um, and a lot of Asian folks, just like super diverse And I still grew up around like really powerful and strong black folks, uh, resourceful. I learned how to be resourceful. I learned how to hustle. I learned Southern hospitality. We got Juneteenth, right, right down the street, depending on where you live, about you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you get to Galveston. That's where the last slaves were informed that they were free, right? That's Juneteenth. There's a huge fine art scene. The, the Alley Theater is, you know, world famous. There's like, like people don't know the art museums um, and, and the culture that it is in Houston because there's a lot of money. There's also a lot of oppression. There's energy, right? It's the mm. hub of energy, um, so you've got all of these evil companies out there. Um, and at the same time you have a, a culture of resilience and revolution and power. Um, so it taught me a lot and, and kind of where I sit um, with all of those beautiful artistic and culinary and cultural endeavors that surround black folks have have created who I am. Um, and I'm slow as hell. I'm slow. I love <laughs> chopped and screwed music. That's Houston. I'm like, I'm slow for Houston. You know what I'm saying? I love the grills. I love, you know, everything. I I love my people, my family, and the community that I grew up in. There's no other place I would I would trade mm. um, to to grow up in.
1: I love that. Houston's amazing. So one of my, we've had a lot of guests on the show actually from Houston and everyone speaks of Houston. Honestly, in a very similar way and and the experiences I've had in the city having been many times, I too think it's just a really special city and um, similar to New Orleans, it always feels like home. I always feel welcomed. I want to get into your upbringing. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're biracial Mm -hmm. and I want to know what that was like growing up. What, What are the greatest lessons you've gotten from your parents?
2: I mean, it was more, I mean, I got a lot of lessons from my parents, obviously, Um, but it was, uh, my existence taught me more, I think, Um, Mm. just like who I was and how I sat at the intersection of, right? Intersectionality, I understood long before I knew who Kimberly Crenshaw was, right? Who coined the term intersectionality. People made sure to remind me that I was biracial in good ways and bad ways. I say a lot of the time, you know, because I don't I don't identify necessarily as biracial. It's I was more actually like a,
1: just about to say that. Like, do you even. It's more I, like that's a, a really good, fact
2: than, yeah. you know, an identity. It's mm. like my mom is white, or European, of European descent. But we also know white is a white construct, right? Yes. <laughs> it's an oppressive yes. construct. So it's not yes. really a race. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. White mm-hmm. is not a race, so how am I biracial? But this, this um, is a whole. thing. You know, we we don't have to get it. <laughs> but no, that's I know real. that people. That's really real. When people see me, right? When people see me, and I, I talk about this all the time, I'm like, no one's ever come come up to me and been like, "Oh, I listen. I I know you're white, but what else?" you know like nobody, nobody's ever like when I first got to LA uh, people were like you know so people know you're black and I'm like well yeah I, <laughs> I haven't ever had no one no one's ever mistaken that <laughs> like, I ever, ever, it's always been pretty obvious for everybody else um yeah. so um it was always weird to me and and not weird, I won't say that. I, I definitely always understood the confusion. It was hyper apparent to me because it was since I was I was very young. There were not a lot of interracial couples. Mm. My f- mom's family disowned my mom because she married a black man. My wow. dad fa- was a foster child. So, you know, he ended up in the foster system. He was an orphan. Um, then he ran away from the foster home. So I he said he didn't know his family. That's a whole long story, mm. but, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of reference points for um, m- culture, my specific culture who, and my identity. So I had to go out and search for it. Wow. And I've always felt like I'm, I'm searching for it. And as I went out seeking other people that had that same those same you know, questions and those same identity explorations or whatever, I met, you know, first generation folks. I met black nerds and I found my culture um, in that misfit area in that in finding those who weren't confident in their identity and and are confident in that. Like, okay, cool. This is what it is. I do live in this gray area and it's beautiful, you know, and the more you realize everybody kind of lives in that gray area. It's just who's accepting it and who's willing to, you know what I'm saying? yeah. So that was kind of my my biggest lesson from my identity and and I have learned that I was taught to not like certain things like our countryness, mm. right? We were super country. So my dad, I have a watermelon patch out out back. I am I ain't gonna lie, I'm in a bougie place. You know what I mean? Wait, in Los
1: Angeles you have a watermelon patch? I
2: got a watermelon patch. You Wait, know what? what?
1: Watermelon's my favorite fruit. I need to be getting fresh watermelon from your backyard. You know, we're
2: country. I know what composting is. I just thought that's what we did. But that's also a way that we can heal our environment. I didn't know that. Um, We had a compost pile. We had a garden. A lot of people don't understand land ownership and stewardship is a way to freedom. Those types of things that I was taught and didn't know. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I was taught them and I was taught to hate them.
1: Wow. 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 So, okay. Wait, Kendrick. You were taught to hate them. Looking back, why was that?
2: I mean, it's systemic, right? It's like Mm -hmm. one of your tools to freedom is your Blackness. Lean into it. You know what I'm saying? We're always taught to lean out of that, to diminish ourselves. If somebody calls you country in school, right, you want to say that, no, I'm elevated, right? I'm this, I'm that. And that's how you're taught to hate, you know, Mm -hmm. those things. And you grow up try- constantly not even realizing you're distancing yourself from the tools that will get you free.
1: Yeah. What about your mom? What is like, what would you say is the greatest lesson you, you, you've received from your mother?
2: My God. That I wouldn't be able to boil it down to one, but she's because she, yeah, she taught me everything. So I used to try to be like my mom. I was just like, Mm -hmm. I want to be successful like her. I want to come in and command a room like her. She grew up as a woman in management in the energy sector in Houston in the 70s. She was there for 37 years. This is when women weren't even really like typing. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like, she was, she was, you know, there were. It was a rising workforce of women, but not nearly, especially in the South, um, to the degree that she was going to work at an old 500 uh, Fortune 500 company and and be in management or anything. So she taught me a lot of things about you know how to cook and 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 take care of family. I used to cook for the whole family sometimes, mm-hmm. a lot of the time. You know how to care for people because she didn't say I love you. Um, Growing up, she kind of stopped after they got divorced when I was about five or whatever. She kind of stopped believing in love. That's my theory Um, until I was an adult and addressed it with them just to ask. I'm like, why don't we say I love you and things like that? Right. It wasn't a whole lot of affection, but I think the biggest lesson, to be completely honest and You know, I hope she doesn't hate me for this. (laughs) She wouldn't. But, you know, the the biggest lesson, honestly, was to follow purpose. Um, Because I realized her passion was counseling and music. Um, And she went into sales and then management in the energy sector because she was good at it. But just because you're good at something don't mean... That's what you're supposed to do. That's capitalism. That's, you know, we should be driven by purpose. I watched how miserable she was and how she worked and gave that company all that she had. And then um, she worked for Xerox 37 years in the energy sector and 37 years. They forced her out. Very ugly. Um, And after that, I was just like, I'm I'm going to follow what I love, you know, yes, <laughs> and, yes. and I'm going to be great at that. And I'm going to pour everything into it because at the end of my life, that's what's going to make it worth it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a struggle regardless. But, you know, if I did everything I could to use the things that I'm most passionate about to fuel that and tool that, then, you know, I've done my job and I could feel really good uh, leaving, you know, the world better than I found it
0: you like to watch new stuff right well go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time
1: talk a lot about how we are our ancestors' wildest dreams, but oftentimes we're our parents' wildest dreams. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that to mm. me, that's that's the goal. It's like, it's we're supposed to look at our parents and who they are and oftentimes who they wanted to be mm-hmm. and, and use that as, as, as ammo, as energy, as a charge to, to take us to where they honestly empowered us to go. And and sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes our parents have the words for it. Other times mm-hmm. they're just the example for it. Right? right? And it sounds like your mom was just such a good example of son, go after everything you want. I didn't do that. And also, you know, it's it's generational. I think most of us in our generation have parents who we would all say the same thing. And I think what we're dealing with now with our generation is we're a little bit in the middle. We're the middle generation where we feel (laughs) there is a part of us that has this like pull to like do the safe thing, because that is what we know. Mm -hmm. But there's also this really strong pull to do the thing that we just want to do, whether it's safe, scary, insane, whatever it is, we just want to do it because, like you said, at the end of our lives, I think our generation has this feeling of we want to make sure that it was worth it. Like, it was absolutely worth it. So, Kendrick, what I want to know now is you moved to Los Angeles when you were 18, which I need to know how you just graduated from high school, popped up in L.A. That seems insane. So I need you to get there. But (sighs) I also just want to know what was the season in your life when, as you just mentioned, we're going to struggle regardless, where the struggle was just... You know, we say the struggle is real. Like, it was too real. And you didn't know how you were going to get through it. I want to know about a time like that in your life.
2: Right now. Mm. I ain't even going to lie to you Mm. right now. Mm. I have a beautiful vision for what I want to do. But I ain't going to lie. I talked to my therapist about this yesterday. I wake up feeling trapped. (laughs) Sometimes in my responsibilities, I've placed all of this energy and this focus into these, this big vision. And it's like, I'm always like, yo, can I pull this off? You know what I'm saying? And like, and, and I, sometimes I feel trapped in that responsibility. And then I have to go through it and realize there's nothing else I could possibly see myself doing and there's nothing else that fulfills me in the way that it, I mean, this drives me. I couldn't I'm not the type of person who can sit around and chill like I get anxious. I have to have a plan. I have to plan I have to plan my chill time, you know, um, and I see these this vision and I see how big it is. And it scares me because it. a lot of the time you have imposter syndrome. Who am I to think that I can do so much? Right. And. That audacity. Is audacity. The audacity, right? And, and we're that's something that we're taught a lot of the time. I see a lot of these kids, especially in the new generation, that have the audacity. Sometimes what they're asking for, you know, we're hiring folks right now. And sometimes what they're asking for, I'm like, y'all got some audacity. But at the <laughs> same time, I got to step back and be like, well, actually, who am I to tell you that you don't deserve that? Mm. Now let me keep it real, I'm looking at this budget and I might not have what you need, but I'm not here to tell you that you don't deserve that. I had to really check myself a couple of times on that, right? Because we should have that audacity to envision bigger and freer and more beautiful every day, right? Our our vision for what we see in the future and our contribution to the future should improve every day, knowing that what we've been taught and the framework that we've been taught has taught us to constrain and diminish who we are and what our imagination is.
1: Really, what I want to know when you when you said this is what drives me, what is yeah. this? What is this?
2: Um this inter- intersection of storytelling and and healing our communities, essentially. Um, you know, and that takes, those are two deep, deep worlds.
1: Yeah. Storytelling,
2: storytelling in, in acting, filmmaking, producing, writing, that storytelling is my job and what I love to do and I'm passionate about it. So I'm going to do it regardless if I'm getting paid for it or not. Same thing with healing our communities. And that's how I view my activism, right? That's how I view liberation. That's how I view my personal work on myself, my meditation, my alone time, my nourishment. Um, Those are the two things that drive me the most. That's why I love talking about mental health so much That's why I love talking about nutrition, right? That's why I love talking about liberation. And I don't see them as separate. Storytelling can also talk about the story of our communities, the narratives that are told about our communities that are harmful and the narratives that can free us, that are authentic and real and truthful and healing. And I get giddy just talking about them, you know? I love people's passion. I'm also like a fix. I I have to fix things. You leave a necklace Mm -hmm. or something on, I have to fix it. So Mm. it's always about improving something, right? It's Mm. just a a, a compulsion and it makes me excited.
1: Okay. So so healing is a huge part of your purpose Mm -hmm. in your platform. So what I want to know is how do you feel you've been able to heal in the most impactful way, whether through acting or build power, you know, both platforms that you have and how have you received it? So how have you given it and how have you received healing in both of those areas of your life?
2: There is a catharsis in acting if we do it in a healthy way, there are unhealthy ways to go about acting and preparing characters and learning scripts and such. Mm-hmm. And there are healthier ways. In the healthiest ways, it can be cathartic. It can help you explore who you are. One of the best lessons I've gotten from acting is not to judge any of your characters, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And so that
2: helps me thinking about that, to not judge folks and to understand that mm. I could be in that situation and to put it into practice because, you know, most people have to do that in life through trial and error, but we get to do that on stage or in safe spaces where we get to uh, rehearse together, and I love that. One of the biggest privileges that we have, I think, as actors is that we get safe spaces to explore our imagination. Everybody should have that. Mm -hmm. You have to have imagination to understand or to envision what your life could be on the other side of healing. Mm -hmm. Right. In my in social justice, I would say, or in the movement work, it's and with build power. It's being part of the work. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were already like quarantine is a trigger word. This means, you know, substance abuse will rise. Mental health issues will rise. You're talking about pandemic and recession. Like this is a bad recipe for poor mental health and substance abuse issues and violence. And so our first things were safety and and mental health resources. And we get to help in that way. We get to amplify work with our platform. We get to provide the education. We get to teach people how to organize. We get to co-organize protests. But more, it's, it's the behind the scenes work that we do every day that stretches us, that builds community. It's healing to participate. Because in the participation, you learn the tools that you get to heal yourself.
1: Mm, That's good. Kendrick, I I wasn't planning on asking you this, but I want to ask you this before we get out of here. When and or where do you feel the most safe as a Black man?
2: Oof. Um...
1: And wait, before you answer, the reason I wanted to ask you is because I realized, as I've been having this wonderful conversation with you, that we don't oftentimes ask this question to Black men. I don't know that I, I'm sure it has been asked, obviously, but I cannot think of when this question has been asked when the safety and the protection of Black men, of Black people, but especially Black men, is very, very important. And so I want to know, when and or where do you feel most safe?
2: Yeah, that's a really complex. I'm sitting here thinking through it. I think I'm going to preface it by saying I think that the answer, the true answer is a little problematic. Um, I feel safest surrounded by Black women. Here's the problem with that. They're not supposed to be protecting me, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? But in my life, that's where it's been. Even the men in my life were introduced, you know, the older men in my life were introduced by women. They're connectors. they're, They're always looking out for us. I'm very um grateful and and proud of the journey that i've had and it was only because y'all created that environment where i can be safe and and safely explore my imagination Mm, that's mama you know mama providing a safe home environment maryland introducing me to church and uh in and um pastor frank so that i could have food you know what i'm saying he was from houston and would make creole food you know uh, Fatmata uh, vying for me when she was an assistant, um, my, our agent, black agent, black woman, right? Back when I met you, I was mm. out there. I ain't had nothing on my resume but commercials or something like that, and they were like, "That ain't good enough." But I was turning down roles, and I had a black woman to be like, "Yo, I I know that y'all want to drop him. <laughs> I know that he ain't got mm. nothing on his resume, but I just want to advocate him for him on on his behalf, you know?" Or she would be submitting me when other people forgot about me. Mm. So for me personally, that's how I felt most safe. Now, I should be able to say that around black men, um, but there's a lot of toxic masculinity in our, you know, and we, you know, I I, I feel safest around certain black men that I know really well. Um, but even in my family, you gotta, we gotta pick and choose and be yes. careful, you know? So that's how I feel. More recently, I would say it's when I'm surrounded by my community, my people that I have been super intentional with, um, that I understand, know, and agree with yes. my your values. Cura- your
1: curated community.
2: Yes. yes. Yeah. And most of them are Black. Uh, yeah. But I have a lot of Brown folks in there and, you know... And my mama. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite white person. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I have, you know, people really strong and incredible, incredible people around. That's
1: amazing. Um,
2: Yeah, that's where I feel I feel safest.
1: I love that. Kendrick, what has been your takeaway from our conversation today?
2: to keep building with folks like yourself when you meet people I was thinking about this earlier if you think about us as kids you know it might have sounded like we're kind of bragging in the beginning and we don't we can't take all the credit cuz our community has really yes. driven us so we're proud not only of the work that we've done and been able to accomplish but the the dr- work that drove us there and supported us to get us there but the other thing is it teaches me to really look at these kids. Just like I said, I look mm. at them sometimes. I'm like, you got audacity, homie. Um, but, but then I go back and I'm like, all right, partner, you need to chill. Like, actually, these kids should be able to dream like that. They need to maybe a little bit more perspective, but like, but they're doing incredible things there were so many times where I had these ambitious words or thoughts when I was a kid and people would shoot them down or say whatever. And I would, it would play in the back of my mind. And I wonder if I had somebody like me to see me and see my potential and that it's not a dream and that it's not unfounded and that it is possible to encourage me in that and to give me the tools that they had um, earlier And to help me understand those at an earlier age, I would have been exponentially more powerful, I Mm -hmm. believe. And so Mm -hmm. it's my job now to encourage that in them and see it in them. And if I have those doubts in their vision and their ambition, then I need to check myself forever.
1: Mm. My takeaway, Kendrick, is I'm really focused on Audacity on audaciousness. Like mm. I I'm thinking about President Barack Obama's book, The Audacity of Hope. And I I always thought it was such a great title for a mm-hmm, book. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's so good. Because it applies to all of us. And what he's saying, and the book is amazing, but what he's saying is basically it was him being audacious that got him to where he 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 is. Right? Mm. It's us being audacious, having Mm. audacious dreams that we are able to have the careers and the lives that we have now, we're able to still be connected. Years Mm. later, having met in 2008 at a young filmmakers program, right? I just want to encourage, I'm encouraging myself, I'm encouraging you, I'm encouraging everyone who's listening to just be more audacious. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen? (laughs)
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody
1: say no, they don't get it. Okay, like keep going. And yeah. so I am going to add a little bit more audacity mm. into my, my the way, I'm going to add more audacity into the way that I move throughout the world. Yeah. Because I feel like that's going to get me closer to leaving the legacy that I know God intended for me to leave.
2: Come on and give I, a breach. Yeah. Give a, <laughs> come on and pass a collection cash app. <laughs> Play. <laughs> um, I prefer
1: Venmo, actually. I prefer Venmo.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No,
1: Kendrick, listen, I adore you, my friend. I'm so grateful that you joined me. And most importantly, I love you dearly, but thank you for saying yes, Kendrick. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you, always.
1: After the credits, the iconic artivist Kendrick would have loved to sit down with and learn from. Stay with us. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by LWC Studios for OWN. The show's executive producer is Juleka Lentigua. This episode was mixed by Kojin Tashiro. Managing producers are Camille Stennis and Paulina Velasco. Assistant producers are Michelle Baker and Shanice Tyndall. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and we hope Hope you did. Please make sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast to ensure you hear the next one. So, which activist or artivist from the past are you hitting the streets with, and what cause are you fighting for?
2: Ooh, Paul Robeson. Yes, Paul. Yeah, I would definitely.
1: What y'all doing?
2: you know, Angela Davis still alive, so I still have a chance to <laughs> meet to meet her in March or something. All right, just sit with her in her presence. But yeah, Paul Robeson, I would, I, I want to travel the world. That he was just a world class performer and incredible activist. I wish I could sit with him in that co- courtroom, and you know, in front of congress or whatever as he was being interrogated in the mccarthy era i wish i just i want to sit at his feet and just learn i want to he's so powerful and i could learn creatively from him and like what solid what international solidarity meant what you know supporting these these countries in the height of their liberation movements meant and and touching down when it was no social media and barely any sort of flights, like you know, he was like a world traveler. Yo, I want I Paul Robeson hands down.
1: I love that. That's a beautiful, wonderful answer.
0: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.